0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. George Weigel, welcome to Facebook Live. Hey folks, I'm Mark Brumley. I'm excited to be talking to George Weigel today about his new book, Not Forgotten. Uh, There's so much in this book George, we could spend hours and hours. We don't have that. I have to read, though, the uh, long subtitle, even though it's going to take longer than usual for subtitles because it so expresses the essence of this book. The title of the book is not forgotten. Elegies for and reminiscences of a diverse cast of characters, most of them admirable, (laughs) George. Uh, Having read the book, twice now, I can say most of them are admirable, but not all. George, um, I'm going to do the thing that people that introduce people have to do. I'm going to tell people that you're the distinguished fellow, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in DC. And you, know, uh, you are the William E. Simon chair in Catholic studies. You've written loads of books, uh, what, a couple dozen at this point. And, um, uh, and you're a New York Times bestseller, a biographer of Pope St. John Paul II, uh, in my view, a significant figure in, in the life and mission of the church in the United States in its own right. That's all bi- biographical stuff up front, we have to say, so that people understand you and, and, and put you in, in the proper context. But what I want to communicate to people about this book is you are a marvelous elegist. Uh, these are superb, very accessible elegies of some of the most notable people in our culture in the last 50 years, and in, in some cases, I think going, well, in many cases, going back even even further than that. What is the thread that brings all these
1: folks together? Well, first of all, Mark, thanks very much to Ignatius Press for, for publishing this book. Uh, I had noticed a few years ago that I had been writing an awful lot of obituary columns or elegies in recent years. And it occurred to me that as I'd been fortunate enough to meet and work with an awful lot of consequential people in my life, uh, that um, a collection of these and and some that had been written earlier uh, might be of, might be of real interest uh, to, to my readers. Um, The thread that binds them together, I think, is that each of these lives teaches us something about noble living, even though, to go back to that Victorian subtitle, uh, some of them teach us lessons about noble living along the old via negativa, uh, how not to to do it. Uh, But um, I, I would thank you for the compliment about my elegiac skills. Uh, let me compliment you on pronouncing reminiscences correctly. <laughs> I've done about 30 interviews on this book, and you're the second interviewer to get the word reminiscences out correctly on the first try.
0: Well, I figure that if I'm going to hang around with you, and even just for interviews, I have to try to get the words pronounced correctly.
1: <laughs> well, it was a fun book to do, and uh, I've been most uh gratified in the last what two months the book's been out month and a half yeah. and how many people say they found it encouraging um i'm not sure i wrote it with precisely that in mind i wrote it to memorialize some important uh, people and some interesting people but this has been a tough year and if people find some uh, inspiration for the future some sense of hope for the future in uh, recollecting these consequential lives, uh, then that's great. I'm I'm very grateful that that's uh, that that's happened. Well, this
0: is going to be a challenge because there are so many wonderful people in here, wonderful at least to talk about. Some of them are not so wonderful in person, but wonderful at least to talk about. You've got uh, folks who are sports figures, uh, political figures. Pop culture icons, educators, uh, novelists, uh, what else? What how uh, you know clergy, uh, laity, uh, significant Catholic figures, significant figures from other faith traditions, and things of that sort, in here. And I and I'm not kidding. It, it's as you know. I mean, it can be a challenge to write about someone. Uh, to, to, to to write an elegy and yet make it interesting, make it more than so-and-so lived from such and such a time and did great things. Um, you are, you've are you done a great job of ta- telling us who these people are, but why we should care, you know, and that's really a challenge. And so the challenge for, for the remaining of this time is going to be talking about as many of these folks as we can get in here, uh, you know, and recognizing the fact that we're not going to be able to cover everybody. So I, I want to start with uh, right out of the gate here. I, I'm curious why you chose uh, to lead off with Fuadad J- Jami. Now, I'm trouble pronouncing his name. I, it's funny. Um, I think I, I once watched an interview with him 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. I thought, if I, uh, you know, the interviewer kind of struggled a little bit. In pronouncing his name. I thought if I ever had to interview him, I would probably get his name wrong. I'm not interviewing him, but I'm interviewing you about him.
1: Uh, Fouad Bat's lead off, uh, simply for alphabetical reasons, we decided to organize the the book alphabetically. But uh, that's that's a deserved place in the lineup. Fouad Ajami, who was a Lebanese Shiite who came to the United States as a young man, Taught for many years here in Washington at the uh, uh, at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, one of the most civilized people I have ever met in my life, uh, a profound scholar of the culture and politics of the Middle East, uh, his book of what now must be twenty five years ago, called the Arab Predicament right is, I still think, the best analysis of why the Middle East is, is so often a mess. Um, and Fouad and I became friends. He invited me to speak to his seminar, particularly about the, the role of the Catholic Church uh, in world affairs. We had a similar view of the post 9-11 politics uh, of the Middle East and the American role in all of that. He died far too young. Uh, And like many of the people in this uh, book, these 68 profiles whom I met uh, and worked with uh, personally, I I just miss him a great deal. So it's good to be able to uh, remind people that there was uh, a man of that quality uh, of mind and spirit in our time, uh, thinking about some of the toughest problems Uh, in world politics and writing about them in a lilting, uh, sibilant, uh, beautiful prose style in what must have been his second or third language. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Jami is an interesting fellow because, uh, uh, especially from an Islamic perspective, because he uh, took a stance in relation to post 9-11 that was (laughs) far and away not typical.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, Fouad knew that 9 grew out of what he frankly called the pathologies uh, of the Arab Middle East. And he was unsparingly clear-minded in describing those pathologies and describing how uh, distorted uh, views of Islamic uh, theology and law had led to uh, not only terror regimes— in Arab lands, but the export of that uh, throughout uh, the world. And he wanted something better for the people of the Middle East than that. Uh, And in that sense, his critique of the culture from which he emerged has to be seen uh, in in a positive light. This was a critique in aid of of renewal and uh, reform. Uh,
0: again uh, resisting the temptation to go too far down this line because we've got a lot of things to cover here it's interesting uh that he uh i can see how you the two of you uh sort of resonate because um he is critical of the tradition out of which he comes but he is critical out of that tradition out of a love for that tradition so he's he he to use language that you often use, you know, looking for resources within a tradition to critique that tradition in a way that uh, brings the adherents of that tradition to a more reasoned uh, practice and understanding of their own tradition.
1: I think Fouad uh, also had something in common with with Benedict the right. Sixteenth. Uh, he would not have reacted uh, to the Regensburg lecture. Uh, the way so much of the world media and others did. What what did Benedict say in Regensburg? He said that Islam, if it's going to develop um, uh, an Islamic theory of religious tolerance and and an Islamic theory of the separation of religious and political authority in a just state, has got to do that from within its own resources. Uh, The notion in some quarters Ion uh, Hersey Ali for example, a very brave woman, uh, another great writer but uh, her idea that you know the answer to this is to turn one in 1. 1.2 billion Muslims into good John Rawlsian liberals is <laughs> just not going to happen right. and and Fuad understood that and therefore appreciated uh, and we discussed this how the Catholic experience of developing from inside, Catholic theology, a Catholic argument for religious freedom and and democracy might provide a model for Muslims interested in doing the same thing. Now that took the Catholic Church a couple of hundred years, and it's going to take the Islamic world a couple of hundred years. But you only get to the right destination if if you start from the right starting point. And he understood that you had to start from within that tradition and retrieve and renew elements of it that may have been forgotten over time or distorted by the particular cultural milieu in which Islam was born. Well,
0: so you're dangling before me uh, a jewel that I'm tempted to grab at right now. I want to kind of put that off for a little bit because it... Uh, the topic that you're raising now relates to a discussion I'd like to have about Father Newhouse and Michael Novak and yourself, because uh, there is a criticism. As, well, I'm telling you that there's a criticism of you that uh, uh, that aims at your doing that you're what you would regard as trying to do what you describe. Uh, with respect to Islam, and there are a lot of people who criticize you for being inauthentically Catholic or selling out to uh, liberalism or all kinds of things like that. Um, Let's talk about Newhouse and uh, uh, Novak in a bit, but I would like to touch on that point with respect to how we understand, how we should understand uh what i'll call a dynamic orthodoxy in catholicism uh, because it relates to a number of the people that you refer to here either people who are trying to to articulate a particular facet of that uh or people who are in fact uncomfortable with certain facets of that i mean we could we could look at bill buckley uh we can talk about father dulles or cardinal dulles andrew greeley (laughs) uh, those are some folks just right out of the gate
1: uh, on that theme. Yeah. Let, let let me just be very candid at the beginning, Mark, and say that this notion that uh, Mike Novak and Father Newhouse and I somehow hijacked Catholicism for another agenda is simply mindless. It's nonsense. Uh, would John Paul II have invited us into the company of his friends and conversation partners if we were doing that? Would he have cooperated with me in writing his biography, giving me complete access to him, if he thought I was somehow hijacking his thought? I mean, this is this is mindlessness from people who don't want to engage arguments, but are happy, you know, frankly, doing calumny. Uh, dynamic orthodoxy understands, with St. John Henry Newman, that the church's self-understanding develops over time. The church does not do paradigm shifts, as some have argued recently, but the church does develop. A paradigm shift is like what happens when uh, Copernicus knocks Ptolemy out of the box in terms of a vision of the universe, or when Heisenberg knocks Einstein out of the box. That's a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in a fundamental how one thinks understands exactly. something. Um, we don't do that. I mean, the faith once given to the saints, as the letter of the Apostle Jude says, remains the faith once given to the saints. But we develop our understanding of that and our understanding of the implications of that. I mean, there's there is nothing specifically about either the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady or her Assumption into Heaven in the Bible. But as the decrees announcing or proclaiming those dogmas indicated, this was implicit in in the theology of the Church, particularly its theology of the Incarnation. we draw out of that treasure house that is scripture through the tradition, through the lived experience of the church, things that are new insights. We just talked a moment ago about uh, a Catholic theory of religious freedom. That was something new in the modern history of the church, but in fact it goes all the way back to Matthew's Gospel, and the Lord's injunction to give Caesar what Caesar gets. But Caesar doesn't get everything. Right. So give God what God gets, which is everything.
0: All right. Well, as I say, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, but I'd like to go back to, to some of the figures in the book uh, and perhaps touching on that theme. Uh, I mentioned Bill Buckley a, a while ago. I'd like, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Buckley and how you see Buckley.
1: I think Bill was one of the five or six most influential Catholic figures in the United States in the 20th century. Uh, he uh, was a man of enormous energy, uh, high good spirits, um, if he will pardon me, a very democratic cast of mind, small d uh, Democrat, um, wonderful and encouraging young writers uh, in their work, and a man who personally created, more or less, uh, what we now call the Reagan Revolution, this kind of fusion conservatism uh, that that really transformed American public life. He did that through his own writing, but especially through, through the magazine National Review. And he did it in part by getting the crazies out of the conservative movement. Uh, Bill drove the John Birchers to the the, uh, sidelines of American conservatism, crazy conspiracy theorists. He drove the anti-Semites out of the American conservative movement. And that's an important thing to remember for today. Behind all of that was a deep and very sincere Catholicism. Uh, He didn't wear it on his sleeve. Uh, but Bill Buckley was a Catholic to his chromosomes, and and lived a life of uh, of prayer and piety, and uh, should be remembered for that as well as all of his other public accomplishments. Okay,
0: notable Catholic figure, journalist, uh, Catholic, or, uh, public, political, intellectual, uh, you know, founder of Nash Review, contributor, shape, if not father the Reagan revolution. Let's move to someone somewhat different, uh, Father Andrew Greeley, who, whom you describe as the loud-mouthed Irish priest.
1: Well, that was actually Andy's description of himself. So that he was nothing but a loud-mouthed Irish priest, and he was right. I mean, he was more than that, but he was certainly that as well. Uh, we dueled in the Catholic press for years. Our columns often appeared on the same page. He was a scintillating writer. Uh, in the early years after Vatican II, I think he did an admirable job of explaining some of the theology of the Council to a, to a general audience. Uh, what uh, sadly turned Andy Greeley In a different direction was his inability to understand the truths that Pope Paul VI taught in Humanae Vitae. He just could not wrap his head around that. And that became the prism through which he read uh, the next, uh, really, 30-some years uh, of Catholic history. Um, he, he's not the only one who had that problem. In, in no, he wasn't. He was, he was particularly significant in, in spreading the the ignorance, uh, if you will. And I think that that's why he could never really get John Paul II. I mean, if you read his little book on uh, the 1978 conclaves, he recognizes that this is a man, Carol Wojtyla, of extraordinary intellectual and personal gifts. And and yet, because Wojtyla was one of the great, uh, not only defenders, but explicators of the truth of Humanae Vitae, um, Grayley really turned against him. And uh, the last time I saw him was during the the conclave of of 2005, uh, right after John Paul II died. And he had become pretty sour by then. And I think that's a terrible shame. Um, uh, But as I think of him now, he was kind of the last. He was the the last batter in the bottom of the ninth inning of you know raucous urban, ethnic Catholicism in the United States. He never got the new evangelization, uh, but he gave, if you will, counter Reformation Catholicism, a boisterous boisterous bottom of the ninth inning. All right.
0: Well, from Andrew Greeley to California Dreaming, you have an, an elegy of Cass Elliott and Denny Doherty. How does that make it into this
1: book? Well, Cass Elliott, like me, is a Baltimorean by birth, so you have to have to take care of the home team here. Um, they're in there as illustrations of what we talked about a moment ago, this via negativa. Uh, I love the Mamas and the Papas. I, I think they were one of the great rock and roll groups of all time. Extraordinary vocal uh, blend. Um, it was all a mess of drugs and booze and promiscuity and all the rest of it. And, but it was great music. And yet all that other stuff, and including that kind of self-absorption, prevented real love from forming. Cass Elliot was deeply in love with Denny Doherty, and he couldn't figure it out. And then, of course, she died of a drug overdose, I believe. He lived for another 30 years and uh, admitted uh, at the end of his life that the biggest mistake he'd ever made in his life was not uh, recognizing and accepting uh, the love of, of Cass Elliot. So there are kind of cautionary tale about the 60s and the self-absorption of the 60s. And of course, the larger lesson from a Catholic theological point of view is that genuine love is self-gift, not self-assertion. Uh, and I think they embodied that in a in a sad uh, way. You quote uh, Mark Stein here
0: on uh, Denny Doherty You say Stein wrote in a fine obituary of Denny, in his final years, widowed, weathered, balding, and paunchy, Denny conceded that turning her down, Cass Elliot, was the great mistake of his life. That's a powerful um, thing to say. And I think, you know, you're a little older than I am, but as I'm getting older. I, you know, I reevaluate how many of the things in our in our culture uh, are treated and received by younger people, and uh, you know it's What a tragedy that that he missed this opportunity for real love, and and perhaps if he had been properly responsive to that earlier on, you know, Cass Elliot would not have died, and we right. may have had a wonderful life together.
1: Yeah. It was um, it was a crazy time that produced a lot of interesting music, Mm. but um, a lot of personal devastation. And the intersection of that with bad politics, which brings us to another figure in the book, Pete Seeger, Seeger. uh, was also uh, part of the mix here. Um, I'll jump the gun and say that uh, the headline that I put on that Uh, obituary of Pete Seeger, he had a hammer and a sickle, I think is the best headline I've ever written in my life. (laughs) He he was a wonderful musician. I love the hammer song and where have all the flowers gone and all that stuff. But he, Pete Seeger, was an unrepentant Stalinist, not just a, you know, guard variety communist, but an honest God Stalinist for 30 years. Uh, And he only later kind of grudgingly said, well, maybe I didn't read that quite rightly. And that's another lesson from from the 60s. uh, And in his case, earlier than that, Uh, ideological besottedness um, can lead you down some very, very bad uh, paths, uh, indeed, even if you're a very talented person. Uh, as as he manifestly uh, was. So uh, I thought it uh, useful to put him in there as, as a lesson in how not to do politics. While we're talking on the subject of politics, tell us a little
0: bit about Pat Moynihan. Now, I, you know, earlier on when, I, when we were setting up the show, I was talking with Christina, who was setting it up, and I was, I was just kind of rattling off some names. There are people that, you know, I remember uh, – you know, and of course, Christina being much younger, they were just names to her. Pat Moynihan was, was a name. He was a significant figure in American politics 50 years ago, 40, 50
1: years ago. Tell us about him. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was one of the most brilliant social scientists of the late 20th century. Uh, he was a remarkably articulate defender of, of the democratic project. Uh, he served in four cabinet or sub-cabinet positions and four consecutive presidential administrations of both parties. He was the U.S. Senator from New York for four terms. And yet he was a kind of great Catholic what if. Uh, Pat would never embrace uh, the pro-life movement the way he should have because he knew the truth of what we were uh, saying in the pro-life movement. Uh, he did not embrace that, although at the end of his life, he did vote, vote for the partial birth uh, abortion ban. Uh, and he never ran for president. Uh, I think in the late 70s, a lot of us thought that Pat Moynihan might be the guy who could bring Catholic social doctrine uh, to bear across the spectrum of, of American public life. From the White House, he never he never ran, uh, and that was a great lost uh, opportunity. In fact, I think his his Senate career, while not without some accomplishments, um, was was almost a coda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his real uh, contributions were in his uh, remarkable research on ethnicity in the United States when he was teaching at Harvard his defense of uh, democracy and human rights when he was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, his recognition early for which he got pilloried of how the collapse of family structure in inner-city America was going to lead to great, great trouble down down the line. Uh, These were the enduring accomplishments of Pat Moynihan, I think more than his Senate career.
0: So there's a parallel figure, in some ways, parallel, some ways, contrast, Henry Hyde. Tell folks who Henry Hyde was. Again, this is somebody who was a who was a prominent figure in American politics 50, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but I think the younger folk don't know, and it's helpful to oh, hear even, even 20 or 30 years ago. 20 years, yes, right. Yeah,
1: I mean, Henry was the leader of the pro-life forces in Congress for 30 years, uh, first elected to the House in 1972 a bear of a man physically, Um, uh, great good humor, Uh, the best spontaneous debater in the House, Um, absolutely rock solid on on the pro-life issues, author, of course, of the Hyde Amendment, which we are fighting to save today uh, against the Biden administration, the Hyde Amendment, which uh, prohibits the use of federal funds for abortion. uh, a, gi- a gigantic figure in, in many, many ways, and one of the funniest people I have ever met. Uh, great teller of jokes, great retailer of stories, old-fashioned Chicago politician uh, with a big heart and a very, very uh, well-honed conscience.
0: So many more figures we could ask about, and I'm resisting the temptation uh, to do that. In the interest of time, but I mentioned uh, Father Newhouse and Michael Novak. We have to come back to them. Uh, you, along with those gentlemen, formed something of a triumvirate uh, back in the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, and I have to say, we alluded to this earlier. It wasn't always well received in the in the Catholic world, and not just simply in that aspect of the Catholic world that saw itself or described itself as progressive, but even among some folk who were on uh, the more traditional or conservative side of things. (laughs) Tell us about Father Newhouse and Michael Novak.
1: I think uh, Michael Novak and and Richard Newhouse were deeply converted Christian disciples, uh, passionately committed to the Catholic Church, deeply committed to the authentic interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Both of them understood that the notion that you could have freeze-framed or (laughs) freeze-frozen, frame (laughs) frozen the Catholic Church in 1958, and that would have made everything just dandy up until now, was, was, was really, frankly, ludicrous. Uh, there was a lot of contention in the church prior to Vatican II. Uh, So the job, in our view, was to put the proper interpretation on Vatican II and, and to draw out of those 16 documents a vision of what we were calling a moment ago dynamic orthodoxy for the future, which included both an affirmation and a serious critique of the Western democratic project. Nothing that our critics from the right have said about the deficiencies of modern or contemporary American democracy we didn't say 20 years ago. I'm sorry if these folks weren't paying attention, but they could go to my book, for example, from Ignatius Press, The Fragility of Order, and, and see some of that at work. I mean, the notion that we were unapologetic cheerleaders for everything going on in the United States is just ridiculous. Um, and it would help the Catholic conversation going forward if people would get off the Twitter feeds, actually read other people's material and then engage it seriously. But this has been, this has been the case for a long time, this kind of uh, cartoon view of people. It's a shame, but I, I'm afraid it's, it's part of the human condition for which we can thank Adam and Eve, I suppose. Right. Well, one of the
0: difficulties is people have forgotten how, or if they ever knew, they don't exhibit today, the ability to disagree without being disagreeable, yep. and then to, to, to uh, properly uh, locate the level of disagreement. It's one thing. You have two, two Catholics who are equally committed to the Catholic tradition have a disagreement about the interpretation of that tradition with respect to, say, political matters. Um, in our context, there's a tendency for those folks to want to, uh, you know, ramp it up so that it comes across as if what they're arguing about is whether or not to accept the divinity of Jesus Christ or something of that sort.
1: And well, I say, I mean, in my own case, since Michael and Richard are no longer with us. Uh, my own attention has been focused far far more uh, uh, comprehensively on the reform and renewal of the church uh, over the past twenty years than on American public life. I mean I still keep my hand in in, in that uh, fr- on that front because I think it's an obligation to do so and particularly under our present circumstances. But uh, most of what I've written over the past 20 years uh, has had to do with the uh, reform and renewal of the church. And that is what, frankly, uh, means the most to me and where I think my vocational responsibilities primarily lie. Close us
0: out, George, with a bit of a conversation about your parents, you, you include them in, uh, among the people that you elegize, um, tell, give us a little bit of a description of what you say there.
1: I, I included my parents in this book, Mark, because, uh, they exemplify, uh, virtues that I think are important today. Um, uh, marital fidelity, uh, devotion to children, uh, Mature patriotism, my father was a naval officer in the Pacific during the Second World War. Um, Commitment to parish. My parents were both deeply involved in the Cathedral of Mary, Our Queen in Baltimore for a better part of uh, 40 years. Hmm. Um, They were not public people. I I think they found my life a bit (laughs) strange, Um, but uh, they were wonderful parents. Uh, and I was, it was really an act of filial piety to include the tributes I paid to them at the time of their funerals uh, in this book. And I frankly thought people might like to meet them. They were interesting people and had interesting if, if unobtrusive lives. Uh, my mother lived in 95. And as I said in that uh, miniature of her in the book, Her lifespan, uh, from her birth in 1914 to her death in in 2009, was the same as from the first James Monroe administration to the, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. I mean, that's a long run, and a lot of stuff happened in that time, and she was a witness to a lot of history.
0: Yeah, they, those entries were, I, you know, they they come towards the end of the book, and there are so many great, as you say, public persons who who are considered in the book. When I came to them, I mean, obviously you're their son, so that comes into play. But when I came to them, what I liked about it, apart from the the, the personal insight into how you describe your parents, um, was the this is sort of meat and potatoes. American Catholicism, and it was very, very refreshing, and it was a great thing, a great note on which to conclude the book, and on that same note, we're going to conclude this interview. George, I really appreciate uh, you writing Not Forgotten, Elegies For and Reminiscences Of, a diverse cast of characters, most of them admirable, Uh, and I thank you for the opportunity to talk about it here.
1: Well, Mark, thank you and your colleagues for publishing the book. It's always great to work with you and to talk with you. God bless. And to you.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and... On behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.